When Jesus speaks, he sounds like Moses. In the Sermon on the Mount, he puts on the stories of Moses, picks up the words that Moses gave the people early on in their traveling through the wilderness. Now, after Moses receives the Ten Commandments, we all know the Ten Commandments, we remember these. Receives the Ten Commandments, gives them to the people, gives them the explanation and draws out the rest of the law for them. It says in chapter 24 in Exodus... That he gathers all the people together and he shares all of the words that God has given them, all the commandments, all the ordinances, all the law. And they all say in like one big unified voice, which is very hard to get people to do ever, but they do it. They say, all of these things that you've spoken, we will do. Moses says, that's great news. And so they build an altar at the bottom of the mountain and then uh, calls for sacrifices. And I don't know a ton about sacrificial culture, but I know there's a lot of blood involved. And the reason I know this is because there are basins that Moses has the people fill up with blood. He takes half the blood from these sacrifices and he puts them in these big jars. He takes half the blood and he dashes it on the altar. Then he says this takes the book of the covenant and he reads it in the hearing of all the people. And then they say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will hear. Then Moses takes the blood from the basins and he throws it on the people, which really gets a point across. I feel like if we did that this morning, you would all go home and then on Monday you would tell your coworkers, you will not believe what happened in church. It's this curious phrase. We're going to go over several strange phrases this morning. There's this line that I just read for you. Everything that, that, that you've spoken, we will do and we will hear, is the way that the people say it, which is a curiosity. Many times a curiosity in the text, especially the rabbis, they ask us to pay attention to what doesn't make sense. This is not the way that the order should go. It should be that they heard it and then they did it. But that's not what the text says. The order matters. Whenever Hebrew or Greek is written out, these words are carefully constructed. The order matters. We will do and we will hear. What's happening and why is it set up this way? The rabbis say, here's what's going on. You have really no idea what's being asked of you. In fact, the way you will discover, the way you will understand what this law, what these commandments are for is by practicing them. And as you do them, they will begin to make sense to you. It's this brilliant idea, and it's captured in this, uh, this disordered language. Now, reminded me of this story I heard a long time ago uh, that has kind of become the way that I practice and also the way that I preach. So uh, this is a drawing that I've borrowed from Mark Twain as he was talking about how to give speeches. He had a problem when he would teach young kids how to remember things. Uh, classrooms weren't quite working out. He was having a hard time himself remembering when he had to give lectures because he, for a long time, was, he was doing this, right? And so he would give the lecture and okay. he was here, but he wanted to be here. He wanted to be with the words. And so he developed this technique that he brought to his students and then also that he brought to himself in his own practice of speaking. And it was a different way to remember. He would plot out a path, like in a field. 
And he would stake out on the path. This is especially important. He's teaching dates. He would stake out these big events that would happen. And he would plot like, you know, you can see it there. 1066. And a picture. He would draw a picture on that sign. And he would plot out about every, you know, 20, 30 or 40 feet. This meandering path through this space. And then what he would do is he would take his students and he would walk the path with them. And as they walked the path, they would see like, here's the sign for this date in history and this event that happened. And then they walk a little further and they see this sign and they'd remember this. And somehow this technique of moving through a space of walking ideas, it stuck in their brains. There's something about moving, about doing that helps us to remember. We, we kind of make the way by walking. It's brilliant. This is also like a sort of a memory technique that a lot of people have found ways to incorporate for a later date. I'll tell you more about that. He would move them. These ideas, they didn't just exist in his mind. He didn't want it just to exist in their students' minds, but how can they embody them? How can they take them into themselves? And so he gets them out of their desks and he moves them into the world. Now, we have been in the Sermon on the Mount for like the whole summer. And this is the last Sunday where we're going to be talking about this bit of scripture. I'm excited about what we're going to talk about next, but I'm actually pretty bummed that we couldn't just sit with this really forever. Uh, But we're at the end. And this week has been a week at the end of several weeks, at the end of several months, at least for me personally, that have just been like full to overflowing and not always in a great way. Like busy, decent amounts of stress, just the, just life, like life happens, right? Well, I found myself, uh, Corey and I get to go on dates on Wednesdays and now that the kids are back in school, we get our Wednesday dates back, which we're very excited about. Uh, and so we were having just like a splendid time. We went out to lunch, to brunch together. Uh, on Wednesday and came back to my car and uh, someone had hit it with their car and they didn't leave a note and I got very mad like very inappropriately mad about this situation because I didn't do anything wrong and there's bloop if anyone in here hit my car you want to chat to me afterwards (laughs) this is not a way to get a confession although I have I've been walking the parking lot every day, like looking for the car that has the same exact bump in their car that would match mine. And sort of two halves fit together like a heart that broke and is put back together. My heart would be put back together if I could just find this other vehicle that hit my... I was so mad. But I wasn't really mad about the car. It had been weeks upon weeks of stress and overworking and overstretching. And this one thing just kind of lit me up. And everyone could see it around me. Corey's sort of like backs away and waits to see what's going to happen. I just couldn't get over it. Uh, And it was making me angry about all kinds of other things. And I was thinking, do I really believe this stuff I talk about every Sunday? And Thursday and Friday are the days when I sort of pull all the pieces that become this teaching or sermon together. And Thursday, I was just not ready. I was was mad still about what had happened. Uh, And so I decided I need to to chill out, (laughs) first of all. But I went and did a walking meditation, a walking prayer on forgiveness. Because I, I realized, like, I'm, 
I'm not in a space of forgiveness. If I meet the person that hit my car, I have words and they're not, forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they've done. Like, you know exactly what you did. You hit the car very hard. So I, uh, so I went to a garden and I, I put my, I put my phone, everything away, but my notebook that I had written the section about forgiveness from the Sermon on the Mount. It's at the middle of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. And then at the end of the Lord's Prayer, it, it sort of reflects on that and says, God will forgive you if you've forgiven others. But if you don't forgive others, and God's not going to forgive you. And I thought, what kind of space am I in right now? If I can't even imagine offering forgiveness or something as small as a bump on my car. Nobody was hurt. So I sat down on a bench. And I started to pray. And I'm like, I am in I'm getting myself in the right space with God. Then I get up to walk and to, to, to sort of say forgiveness to all of the things that I am angry at. To ask God to forgive me for all the anger I've carried around. As soon as I get up out of the bench, I had sat in a whole bunch of sap. <laughs> so this did not work. Like it didn't start off well as I kind of peel myself off the bench. So I come back, right? Like, forgive me for being mad at the tree. For dropping the sap. Oh. And I, like nothing magic happened. But I just, I went and I walked the path. And I looked for the signs that we have been laying out week after week. And I, I found the one that we had said, like, forgive those who, forgive even your enemies or love even your enemies. Like, the whole, just put it into myself. Walking these ideas into their part of my life again. This idea of doing, of practicing so that we can understand is one that Christianity adopts from Judaism. This, this religion of practice, of practices, sacred rituals, ways of be in the world. Ideas are only ideas until they become action and then they become something real and tangible. So this language of hearing becomes really important for the Jewish people. And it sort of centers around this one confession that we've said in here before, Perlman, I know that you know it, but we're going to say it again together, the Shema. Yeah, so this is, I'll, here's what it sounds like. This is from Deuteronomy 6, and this is sort of the, well, there's a lot here. Maybe we'll preach like 10 sermons on these three lines one day. So it's a Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. It means, hear, O Israel, the Lord, Adonai, the Lord your God, Adonai Achad, the Lord is one, or is complete, or is whole, or is unified, or is the only one. So I don't know how to sing it. You, you know how to sing it? I'm going to come close to you so you can use my mic and you're going to sing it for them. It's really lovely. You can clap for, for Perlman. <laughs> So, so we're going to say it together, what line by line. First line is Shema Yisrael. So we'll try it again. Shema Yisrael. That's hero Israel. The next line, Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Eloheinu. Then the next line is Adonai Echad. Adonai Echad. Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And then it says this afterwards. It says, you'll love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all of your muchness, with all your veriness, with all of your might. Keep these words that I'm commanding you today on your heart. 
Recite them to your children and talk about them when you're at home and also talk about them when you are walking on the way. When you lie down and when you rise up. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead. Write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Another curiosity in the text. Keep these words I'm commanding you today on your hearts. This language of heart is like whatever is driving, animating force inside of you. Levav. And so the teachers of Judaism, the rabbis, they say, why does Moses write it this way? Why does Moses say that the words, that the commandments, that the instructions that are going to be written on your hearts? Your translation might say in your hearts. That's not right. The language is on. Why are the words on your heart? They come up with this brilliant teaching. Say... God gives you these words, these commandments, and you are to write them on your heart. You will not know what these mean right now. How could you know all of what is contained in this gift that is the word of God? But just put them near you. Hold them close. Put them on your heart. And then at some point when your heart breaks, the words will fall in. And you will understand. Word devar is the language for, for word that's given. And they're written on us so that at some point when life breaks us, the words are there to fall inside. It's a beautiful image of what it means to study God's word. Even when we don't understand it. What does it mean to love our enemies? I don't know, but can I just write it right here? And at some point I'm going to meet my enemy and it's going to break me apart and I'll have to remember those words and then maybe I'll understand them. So that's what we've been doing with the Sermon on the Mount. Three chapters in the book of Matthew, five, six, and seven. It's a lot of words. It's not a ton of words. You could memorize it. We should memorize it. But we've tried to take it at a good pace together. We've been walking the path with Jesus. So my challenge would be, can you continue to read and continue to hone and learn? Can you write these words on your heart? Because the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' teaching on the law. This is Jesus' interpretation of Torah, of the law that was given to Moses, that was given to the people. And so we would do well to pay attention. Three chapters. But there are other ways that we might be able to hold on to this. So every Sunday when we've been preaching and teaching together, we've also said the Lord's Prayer. It's right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And the prayer is like a, as a little synthesis of all of that language, of all of those ideas. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth that is in heaven. Give us today the bread we need. Forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. It's like all of the sermon is condensed into several lines. So that's the middle section. Maybe you could just hold that and that would be your walking prayer. But then at the middle of chapter 7, Jesus ends his commentary on Torah and says this line, Do unto other people as you would have them do to you. Because here is all of the law and all of the prophets. And so if you can't even hold that part, just maybe that much to hold on to. This practice that we take into ourselves. And we come to the end. 
Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, right, we will do and we will understand. Everyone who hears and everyone who acts is like a wise man who builds a house on the rock. This is architectural wisdom. I did three years of, of, of architecture school in undergrad, so I'm qualified to interpret this parable. It's good news. The person who hears these words of mine and does them is like a wise man who builds their house on the rock. And it says, then all of this calamity will befall you. There'll be storms, there'll be floodwaters, there'll be wind, and it will beat on the house. But the house will stand. But if you hear these words and you don't do them, then you're like a foolish man who builds their house on the sand. And then the same calamity falls. Right? The storm rolls in, the waters rise, the wind it blows and it beats against that house. But the house it falls. And how great is that fall? a really, really simple parable that Jesus teaches here. Two kinds of houses, two kinds of foundations, two kinds of realities and experiences. And again, we get this language of storms, of suffering. It existed in the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes. Blessed are you when you were persecuted for my name's sake. And now here we are again at the end of all things. Jesus tells this story in a really lovely way, though. Tells it in a very Jewish way, in a very Hebrew way. It's called parallelism. It's where you you sort of give the story in this very, like, cadenced, rhythmic way, and then you tell it again with a slight variation, with a similar cadence or rhythm. It's It's a learning device. A is like B is C is like D. And so here's what it looks like if you look at verse 25 and 27. I'll read you my translation The rains fell, the floods came, the winds blew, and they beat on that house. Then verse 27, right? So there's the, you've got got the wise person who builds on the rock. This is the experience. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house. Then you've got the foolish, the foolish person who builds on the sand. And then they experience the rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew, and they beat against the house that house. This is called parallelism. Asked on Thursday if anyone who was with us studying knew what parallelism was and where's Rini? Rini says, I can guess what it means by the word. (laughs) Yeah, it's this idea. There's this sort of similar trains of thought that Jesus is running down parallel tracks. I'm going to show you something that when I found it this week, I got so excited. Like this is my favorite thing about getting to do the work I do, or sometimes I, I find a thing and I'm like, I can't wait to show my friends this thing. So friends, can I show you what I found? Uh, there is parallelism in this verse that feels almost identical. It's like, it's like 20-something words that are word for word the same in the Greek. And if you have your Bible in front of you, you probably have like 10, 15, or 20 different translations in the room. You're not going to see this, so I'm going to show you what it is that we're seeing together. You're going to have to trust me that I've been spending a ton of time with the language that Jesus's listeners would have received this sermon in, in the Greek, and what we found together. 
Because it's not exactly parallelism. It's almost exactly parallelism. But it is what we would call fractured parallelism. It is this sort of beat, and then you expect the same beat, and then at some point there's just like this whole different note that's played. And it's in that last phrase. The rains came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew, and they beat against that house. Everything is the same until that last line. The rains came down, the streams rose, the winds blew, and they beat against that house. Those last two lines are completely different words with completely different ideas. And here's what I want to say to you today. Those of us who hear and who do, who put into practice the words of Christ, will experience storms. Like, there is no guarantee that following after Jesus will make your life quite simple and easy and easygoing. Storms are storms. What Jesus' promise is here is that your experience of those storms will be radically different. So there are these two different ideas stemming off this one phrase, this wind that beats against the house. Underneath them are these two different words. The wise builder who builds on the rock will experience the wind as prospipto, which is clear all by itself. And the foolish person who builds on the sand will experience the wind as proscopto. You ready? That first word about the house on the rock, when the wind shows up, it takes a very specific posture. The Greek actually says that the wind, as it approaches the house built on the rock, will bow down in respect, that it will give way. There's something about the house built on the rock, which is Christ, which is this way to live that will make the wind stop in its tracks. It's still there. There's still floods rising and winds blowing. But when they approach a life built on the way of Jesus, they take this posture that is quite passive. And the house stands. The foolish house. The foolish builder on the sand. It says, the rain came down, the streams rose, the wind blew. And it says... It's like the wind just sort of like stubs its toe on the house. It's the language of stumbling into something. It doesn't even have this antagonistic intention. It just trips over the house. And that is enough to bring the whole thing crashing down. It's the same wind. In a lot of ways, it's the same house. Completely different experiences. Now think for a moment about when storms arrive and about what kind of clarity that brings to your practice of faith. Which way do you experience the struggle?
I always think to myself, I, I end up getting to sit with people a lot of the time when they're in really heavy places in life. It's one of the like joys of the job is to be able to be with folks in the struggle. And I think when I, when I am invited into that space with someone and we always were sitting across like a table having coffee, I, I hear the, you know, the pain of that moment. But as I'm looking across, I think I'm about to learn something about what this person really believes. We're about to have a clarifying moment together. In the same way that when someone hits my car in the parking lot, I become really clear to myself. Right? Any kind of pretension I had about, I know the Greek and Hebrew guys, so I can forgive anybody anytime until they bump my car. Right? There's this clarification that shows up. And I'm wondering for you how your life has become clear, how your faith has become clear as you've entered into seasons of struggle. Does it feel like a thing where the wind is blowing, but it's not moving you? Or the smallest thing could knock you down? Storms clarify what you built your life on. I am happy for all of us together every week and to learn together and to imagine together and to take these ideas from Jesus, but to do them is another thing, to practice them, to believe that they will hold when the winds blow. That is another thing and is something that is only revealed in the struggle. The disciples, they think in following Jesus, that we have found the person who is strong enough to take us to the top. And Jesus keeps telling them that is not the program, guys. At some point, the winds are going to blow. At some point, the whole world is going to turn on what we are trying to do. And are you going to be able to stand? Storms are going to clarify what our lives are built on. And the other truth that is not a big revelation is that storms are going to come sooner or later. I don't know what they're going to be. I have some ideas. Moments when following the way of Jesus will put us at odds with the winds that are blowing in this world. And it will clarify. We have had a season of clarity and it has been brutal for a lot of the church in the West. Now if you go down to like the the global south, go visit South America, or sub-Saharan Africa and pay attention to what they are experiencing of God. There is a different kind of house being built on a different kind of foundation and winds have been blowing forever there and somehow the thing is rooted and sturdy. But there's something happening right now, this clarification, because the storms seem to be blowing. And then this question, always this question, are we going to be ready? I was not ready for something as small as my car getting bumped. And I realized this clarity came into my life that I was holding anger for a lot more than a car. And I had to walk the path of forgiveness. 
I'm still walking it. I'm still frustrated about all kinds of things. But these aren't just ideas. I don't want to carry this. You don't want to carry that. Jesus is preparing his followers because he knows where the story is going. It's not like it's a meandering path, the way of Jesus. He says along the way, this is headed somewhere. He uses the language of the cross, this language of death, of defeat, or of loss. And says, are you going to follow me even here? And they say, absolutely. And he says, you have no idea what you're asking for. Can you be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? Can you follow me even into the dark? There comes a point when Jesus is betrayed. These leaders, they show up at night and they come to arrest him. One of his own has betrayed him. And the winds have started to blow and the floodwaters are rising. And Jesus says, get on with it. Come do what you came to do. I don't know why you brought clubs. We've been here all the time and we didn't bring anything with us. Why did you bring all of this weapons? Whatever. I'm ready. He was ready and his disciples, what happens? They they fall. They go. They had been listening, but they've not heard. And then the story continues. Jesus is taken, is arrested, is brought before the politicians, the governors, the religious leaders, and continually found culpable or guilty of whatever they wanted to accuse him of, whatever reason they had to bring violence upon him, and then they take him outside the city up to a hill with criminals, and they sentence him to death. Jesus says a series of things in this space. To me, they all sound like what happens when the heart breaks and what falls in. Or if what happens if you are the word? What falls out? Father, forgive them. They have no idea what they're doing. Or the Psalm 22 language that falls out of Jesus' heart and mouth at the moment before death. The way Matthew tells it is apocalyptic. It feels like a storm has rolled in. When Jesus dies, the world goes dark. And after Jesus dies, earthquakes, storms, zombies. It's crazy. The story of Matthew's gospel is crazy. All of these people rise from the dead and they enter into the streets. I said that I sit with people all the time at moments of crisis and I learn a lot about them. I learn a lot about someone at the moment of death. And the ones who find themselves able to stand even in that storm, I pay close attention to them. Because here's what happens to Jesus. This takes eyes to see. Death bows down. We spend a lot of our lives tripping over it, falling apart at the fear of it, acting in all kind of crazy ways to avoid it, 
what Paul calls the last enemy. Jesus has been preparing us for what it is like to live in the world suffused with death and to stand. And then Jesus shows us what it looks like to do so. In open hands, the posture is even open. And the rain falls, and the floods rise, and the wind blows, and death takes a bow. I don't know when the moment will arrive for you. If it will be as small as a hit and run in a parking lot, or it will be as strong as a betrayal of someone you love, or it will be an illness, or it will be persecuted. I don't know, and you don't either. You might be in it. But will you be ready? Will you walk this path? Will you choose to believe that this is the way? And they said in one voice, everything that is spoken, we will do. We will do and we will understand. We believe God help our unbelief. Will you pray with me? God, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, against enemies we perceive to be near or far. Our struggle is with forces that we don't even understand. These powers, these principalities, these forces in the shadow spaces. And we definitely confess that on our own we will fall to pieces. And so we wear like a garment the way that you have taught us. This humble posture of love and forgiveness. God, we believe that this is the way that leads to life and help our unbelief when we falter. We would like to build our lives on something solid and believe that that might be you. We give you all these prayers in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.